Welcome to our service today, those of you here in our sanctuary and those of you watching from home. We're so glad to have you with us. I want to let you know that we now have both Noah's Ark, our ministry for preschoolers, and Kids Rock, our church for elementary age children, during our 9:15 service as well as our 11 a.m. service. So Kids Rock is happening right now. And for those of you watching from home, we did not want you to miss out on Miss Marie's message. So that is now located at the very beginning of the live stream. So if you've missed that either last week or this week, you can still go back and see that online. We didn't want you to uh, miss out on her great messages. We're continuing today our study of the New Testament book of Romans, written by the great apostle Paul, long letter to the Roman church of 16 chapters in our current Bibles. Um, Romans has been called the most basic, most comprehensive statement of true Christianity. It is a very logical, systematic explanation of the gospel and how to live it out in a long letter. Today we get to Romans chapter 7. And I'm smiling a bit because, to me at least, Romans chapter 7 is the most difficult chapter in, in the book to really feel like you got a grasp on, for me at least, to really interpret and understand. In fact, I find it one of the most difficult in all the writings of the Apostle Paul. And in understanding a difficult passage, we always want to be sure we understand those challenging verses in their broader context, the context of chapter 7 and the broader context of the letter to the Romans. Now, in understanding Romans chapter 7, I think it's very helpful to understand some key words in this chapter, some key terms. And the first one is the word law. References to the law in Romans chapter 7. I counted the word law 23 times in this one chapter. And when you add in synonyms for the law, like commandments, which Paul uses uh, almost interchangeably with the word law, uh, you get several more references just in this one chapter. It's a key theme he's addressing in Romans chapter 7. What does he mean when he talks about the law? He's talking about God's commands. And he writes in verse 7 of this chapter, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And here he quotes one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet, thou shall not covet. So this is, is what he means by the law, God's commands. Now, the reason Paul is saying this is because he's been teaching that a person cannot be saved by keeping God's law, by keeping God's commands. But he wants people to understand that the law is not bad. The law is good. The law serves a purpose. It's like a great big spotlight that shows us our sin. And so Paul says, I, I wouldn't have known sin if it weren't for the law. Law identifies my sin. It shows my coveting to be coveting. He goes on to say in Romans 7 verse 12, So the law 
is holy. The law is, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's dispelling this idea that just because you can't be saved by the law doesn't mean the law is bad. The law is holy. It, it's righteous and good. It's a key word we've got to understand. Understand the challenging teaching in Romans chapter 7. Another key word, the word sin. That one's pretty simple. It means to transgress God's law, to break his law, to miss the mark of obedience to God. And he writes in verse 13, did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, through the law, might become sinful beyond measure. He's simply saying the law is not bad. Sin is bad. The law shows sin to be sin. And then a third word, flesh. Paul uses this word a number of times here, as he will, in chapter 8 of the book of Romans. And it's a reference to the sinful nature, that part of our human nature uh, that still inclines toward sin. As uh, Pastor MacArthur defines it as the part of a believer's present being that remains unredeemed. This is why Paul can say in Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Have you noticed, those of, of, of you here who uh, know that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you know you're a Christian, have you noticed that we Christians still do sin? Um, in fact, if I reflect on my life the last uh, 24 hours or so, I, I think I can identify some sins. You know, it's an interesting thing. When, when, when you first come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, if you, particularly if you come to faith a, as an adult, um, it seems that God identifies some pretty major sins pretty, pretty quickly. And maybe you're changed and there's a fairly dramatic life change and you, you no longer do some of those very flagrant, obvious sins. But over time as you grow, you're not drawn to those sins anymore, but as you walk more closely with God, you recognize other things that you never would have even thought of as sins before. Attitudes, judgmentalism, uh, jealousy, wrong motivations, self-centeredness, wanting to say something or do something to make your, yourself look good, to put your interest before the interest of somebody else. You realize more often that you're not really loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength as you should. You're not really loving your neighbors yourself. These things, the closer you grow to God, the more readily they are identified. Why is that? It's because God is making us more like Jesus. He's making us more like Christ. The Christian church has long believed, though it's been debated quite a lot in the Christian church, that a growing Christian never reaches a state of absolute sinless perfection in this life where you can no longer sin. We're, we're being uh, freed from sin's power increasingly and in being made to be like Christ. But if you've been a Christian for a very long time, you know 
that that potential is still there. That inclination can still uh, draw you. Now, this sets up what we might think of as the struggle, the challenging verses in Romans 7 to understand. Notice in this first verse, verse 14, are three key terms, law, sin, flesh, they're all used. Paul writes, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And then he says something that sounds unusual for the great apostle Paul to say. He says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. One commentator I read said, this is the golfer's verse. I do the, don't do what I want to do. I do the very thing I hate. I'm going to put that ball in the middle of the fairway and it ends up going in the lake. Those of you who play golf may understand that. I think these are two of the hardest verses in the book of Romans to, to understand. And here's why. The Apostle Paul is talking in first person when he says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, is he talking about himself? Seems like he is. Is he talking about his present state when he's writing as the great spirit-filled Apostle Paul who wrote in chapter 6, sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law, you're under grace. Who writes in chapter 8 of Romans, if you walk in the spirit, you don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. You're led by the spirit. Is he talking about himself present tense or is it his pre-Christian state? Now, the reason it's important is because you and I want to know, is this to be the normal Christian experience? That we're constantly saying, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. When we come to challenges like this in interpreting the Bible, two, two keys are, are really important. I think the two most important keys to biblical interpretation. Number one, we always interpret scripture in its context. We understand this context of, of teaching about the law in chapter 7. But the other is this. We always interpret scripture with scripture. So if you get a, a passage of scripture that you read and it's just unclear, it's cloudy. We interpret that in the light in the light of other scriptures that are more clear. Because the Bible is a unified whole and it does not contradict itself. It's all inspired by God. It's all truth. We can interpret scripture with scripture. And so, is there any other place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul uses language like this and he talks about something in similar terms, similar ideas, and I think the answer is yes. He does this in the book of Galatians chapter 5. And so let's read there for a moment. There in Galatians chapter 5, he says, and this does seem to be a normal, normative Christian experience, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, 
And the word spirit is capitalized. So this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, we understand. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other from, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Here's the point. There is, and I, I think two points become clear. Number one, there is an ongoing battle with the flesh. Christians can still sin. Christians do still struggle, stumble, sin. We shouldn't choose to do that. We should choose to walk with God increasingly. But there, there is an ongoing battle in this life with the flesh. But number two, Christians don't have to sin. There is victory available. There is victory at hand. And it's not by law keeping. It's by being empowered, guided by the Holy Spirit and walking in the Spirit. In the book of Romans, chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, it seems like the Apostle Paul is setting up certain contrasts. And you can see this in, in, a, in a, a visual on the screen. In chapter 5, Paul is contrasting what it means to be an Adam that is born as a, a human being, but then being identified in Christ and with Christ. In chapter 6, he talks about us human beings being in slavery to sin. But then when we come to faith in Jesus, we're now in slavery to God. We have a new master. And at the very start of chapter 7, he uses this, this image of uh, a woman who's married and her husband dies. Let me just read these verses to you while you, you look at these words on the screen. He reads... Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she's freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. In other words, we're now married to Christ, not to the law. There'll be another contrast in chapter 8, and it's the contrast between being in the flesh and being in the spirit. The point is this, victory over sin, over these desires of the flesh, are overcome not by the law, but by the power of the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done for us. We understand the teaching of Romans 7 better if we look at the beginning of Romans 8. So I'd like to read the first four verses just very briefly. You'll see those on the screens before you. Paul writes, therefore, reflecting back into everything he's just said in Romans chapter 7 about this struggle. Therefore, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son. He came and on the cross bore the judgment for our sin. He bore it upon himself. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Through our faith in Jesus, we are considered as having the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. Through our faith in Jesus, it's as if we fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law of God. Even though we did not, Jesus did. We did not. But through our faith in him, we are credited with this. He gives us then his own Holy Spirit. And as we walk in life, as we walk in, in the Spirit, we are liberated from the desires of the flesh, from the control of the flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit within. Struggle with the flesh is a very real present thing for the Christian, but victory is available by resting in the finished work of Jesus and walking in the power of the Spirit. And let's just be frank about this. We Christians do this with varying degrees of success. Last week, hope you saw our service last week if you weren't here. If not, you can go back and watch it. But um, after uh, Sonny spoke, we had a couple of videos at the end from um, members of our church involved in local missions. The second one was Emily Davis and uh, she talked about her ministry at Solus Christus and one woman in particular she'd ministered to. And she said something that to me was, was very powerful. She spoke about a woman who, who lost her battle with addiction. And I think Emily said, addiction won, but she was saved. And I, I was glad Emily said that because many Christians would say, okay, that woman lost her battle with addiction. She died. How could you possibly have been a Christian? Those of you who've been involved in prison ministry, ministry with the homeless, ministry with people who struggle with addictions, you, you probably discovered, as I have, that people who go through some of those battles, sometimes there's a mental illness with, with the folks we minister to who are homeless or incarcerated, uh, there are struggles that are not like the struggles you and I have faced. And sometimes those folks in great humility come to Jesus, seek him, and come in what I think is a genuine faith, but they continue to have their struggle with the addiction with the issues that have plagued them throughout life. And sometimes I believe a, a genuine safe Christian does lose that battle to depression or to addiction. 
My point is simply this. Some of us struggle more than others in the battle to overcome sin in this life. Those of us who struggle less should be slow to judge those who struggle more. Those of us who struggle less should be slow to judge those who struggle more. And so I was glad Emily said what she said. And I, I thought about something the Apostle Paul says later in the book of Romans. Paul in Romans 14 talks about Christians who are weak as opposed to those who are stronger. And when he gets to the beginning of Romans 15, here's what he says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of those who are weak and not to please ourselves. You hear what he's saying? We who are stronger in the faith, we actually have an obligation to bear with our brothers and sisters who are not where we are. They've got greater struggles than we do. Let's not condemn them. Let's not reject them. And I'm talking about people who genuinely put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is the way, and I believe, the only way of salvation. But in this battle against this, the flesh, against the sin, there are those who struggle more than others. I think of the passage where Isaiah the prophet wrote about the Messiah, Jesus, a bruised weed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quit. I think it means that Jesus is gentle with the struggling sheep, the struggling one, and we should be too. Well, let's get to the part of chapter 7 where Paul points out not merely the struggle, but the path to victory, because I think he does that for us in Romans 7. He lays it out very strongly and clearly in chapter 8 that we'll look at next week. The believer's provision for victory over sin, he points out in a couple of key verses in chapter 7. Number one, to recognize we've died to the law. Likewise, my brothers, just like the, the woman who, whose husband died, her, her, she's free to marry again because her marriage is over. You've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. His point is that the law is not our master. Christ is our master. Don't try to please God or reach God by law keeping. You can't do it. It can only be done through faith in Jesus. Secondly, we are identified with Christ and belong to him. I love these words where Paul writes, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Do you ever think of yourself is belonging to Jesus, being identified with Jesus, being identified with the resurrected Jesus, the one who's raised from the dead. That's the way the Bible presents the state of the believer. Thirdly, we're free to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Paul writes, we are, now we're released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. Paul lays this out, I think, uh, a little more uh, clearly for us in Galatians chapter 5 when he writes these words. But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And then finally, Paul reminds us we've been freed in order to bear fruit for God. Notice he says we died to the law, we belong to Christ. What results? We're to bear fruit, bear fruit for God. Fruit results in the life of a person who walks in the Holy Spirit, who walks with the Holy Spirit, who is led by, guided by, filled with the Holy Spirit. What is that fruit? It has to do with actions, people we serve, people we reach with the gospel, but it also has to do with attitudes. It has to do with those inward qualities that are sometimes called fruit of the Spirit. And Paul tells us what these are in his same teaching passage on this subject in Galatians chapter 5, where he writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's what God wants to be developing, doing in us. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Against these things, there's no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, in closing, how do we live this out? How do we live out this victory to which he is pointing us in honestly describing his own struggle? And by the way, when Paul says what he does about his own struggle in Romans chapter 7, to me, it's just the epitome of humility in this man. I mean, this is the one God chose to write the book of Romans. He, he's writing the scripture. He's writing 13 books of our New Testament. And he's telling us how he struggles. How can we live out this victory first, like the Apostle Paul, by recognizing our complete dependence upon the Lord? Humility is required. Humility is required. The Apostle Paul had been a very proud person as a leader in the Jewish religion. He was a very accomplished person. He was a rising star. But he recognized that it is only the humble who receive the gospel. We've got to become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to recognize our complete dependence upon the Lord. You and I will not overcome sin, the desires of the flesh, in our own power, only by recognizing our inadequacy, humbling ourselves before the Lord. It's the same way for the Christian who wants to increasingly walk in power over sin, 
We recognize our complete dependence upon the Lord. We humble ourselves before him and receive his empowering grace for the battle that we're facing at any point in our Christian life. Number two, by resting in the completed work of Jesus. Humility is required for the first. Trust is required for the second. If you're one who struggles with perfectionism in your spiritual life like I, I have, good solution is simply contemplating the gospel, contemplating what Jesus has done. Going to a passage like the one we read a few minutes ago from Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, where we read, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He did it all. He did it for us. And then number three, by seeking the control of the Holy Spirit. Apostle Paul speaks a great deal about the Holy Spirit. He tells us to live by the Spirit. He tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. He tells us to be led by the Spirit. He tells us to walk in the Spirit. He tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled by, yielded to. God calls us to desire His presence. And I think you can be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to the degree that you desire to seek God, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you're sincerely, genuinely willing to have his control in your life. As you humble yourself before him, you trust that he will do what he says he'll do. You, you ask him for the fullness of his power, his presence in your life. He will give that to you. And this is the way, this is the way to victory over the flesh for those who are followers of Jesus. We'll talk about this more next week when we get to Romans chapter 8, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful part of God's word. We're actually, there's so much in Romans chapter 8, we'll actually spend three weeks in Romans chapter 8. But for now, would you pray with me? Father, we again come in the name of Jesus. We pray for the power of your spirit to take this part of your word and apply it to our lives. And Lord, if I've taught any part of it wrongly, would you please overrule that and guide your people forward in grace and truth? Lord, I pray you would stir each of us to more fully desire the leading, the presence, the empowering and the fullness of your Holy Spirit in our lives. That we would be individuals and we would be a church body that is recognized by the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit who's making us increasingly like our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your great great name.
Now, before we worship the Lord again, I'm going to invite you to join me in a prayer. Not a prayer so much as a confession, a statement of belief, a creed. It's called the Apostles' Creed. And if you're not familiar with it, it's on the screen. And if it expresses what you believe, I invite you to say it with me. If, if you're not sure whether it does, you might just want to read it and say, do I really believe that? As this is what Christians have believed since the early centuries of the Christian church. I invite you to say it with me now together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.